But I've been looking forward to this day for a while now. For those of you who know, we are starting our Worldview Sermon Series, um, and I'm excited to jump into this with you. Now, when I was a boy, I just knew, like a lot of boys, that I was going to be a fighter pilot, right? Like I was all things airplanes. Uh, I had family that was in the service, and so I had a OD green uh, flight suit that was way too big for me and a bomber jacket that was way too big for me, and I wore that thing everywhere. This is the early 90s, so Top Gun's not that old, and I spend my Saturday mornings watching Top Gun and Iron Eagle and Airwolf and all of these cheesy airplane shows. And one part of any would-be Aces outfit has to be his aviator sunglasses, right? He's got to have those. And I had the cheesiest pair of those as well, because they were, I don't know if you'd call it like a sunburst or what, but they were kind of like the top of your um, windshield on your car. They were really dark on top, and they kind of faded down into like a lighter color at the bottom, right? So depending on where you looked out of the sunglasses, uh, it would be a different color. It'd be like a rose color kind of at the bottom and a real dark color at the top. I don't know if you've ever seen those. I don't know why anyone thought that was a good idea, but I had a pair of them. And what we see when we put on any glasses, right, is that objects appear slightly different depending on the glasses. So if you're at the shooting range, maybe you have some yellow lenses that make things crisp. If you are on a sunny day out on your fishing boat, you probably want to throw on your polarized sunglasses. We're, they were giving me a hard time this morning because I turned 40 this month. Um, and I'm looking at purchasing a Bible that's a little smaller to preach out of, and they were giving me a hard time saying I'm probably going to need readers soon, right? Maybe I will, maybe I won't, I don't know. But if I do, the objects will change depending on the lenses, right? If, if you have someone that's very, very, uh, can't see very far, and I put on their glasses, things are going to get blurry for me because they're not my glasses. The right set of lenses can be a blessing, but the wrong set can make you stumble. If it's the darkest day of the year in Barrow, Alaska, we don't want to have on our polarized sunglasses, right? Well, glasses are a good illustration for our topic for the next 12 weeks because our worldview is like a pair of glasses. When we have on the right pair, things get clear, and when we have on the wrong pair, we can stumble. So what is a worldview? Well, a worldview is the lens through which we interpret the world around us. Right? That's the simple definition. A more complex one might be, it is an ordered set of presuppositions, excuse me, an ordered set of propositions that one believes about life's most important questions. So every single one of you this morning has a worldview. The question is, do you have a good one? If you're a Christian, do you have a biblical one? Matthew 22:37 says that we are the love the Lord God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, and what's that last part? All of our minds. The Greek word for mind is understanding or thinking. So we are to love the Lord God with our understanding. We are to love the Lord God with our thinking. Remember Christianity is not just a mindless emotional religion, but we are a thinking religion. We are to think rightly according to what the creator of the universe says. <clears throat> David Garland wrote in his commentary of Mark, just as God does not love certain portions of us, but loves us in our entirety, 
we must love God with not just a portion of ourselves, but to love Him with the entirety of our being. And that's what that passage means in the Gospels. Love the Lord God with our hearts, with our souls, and with our minds. Romans 12.2 calls us to conform our thinking not to popular secular worldviews, or as the Bible sometimes calls it, the spirit of the age, but to be instead transformed by renewed minds that honor the Lord. As Calvin said, the whole man is born again. So it's not just our hearts, but also our minds. We are called to see the world clearly because of what the Lord has done in our lives. But our world has fallen, right? We live in a fallen world. We're going to get to that a lot when we get to Genesis 3. We're in one this week, three next in a few weeks. We live in a fallen world, and books and movies and songs and social media, they all play a part in altering our thinking more than you probably think. I brought an example with me. My kids thought I was crazy when I asked them to get this from the basement this morning. But this right here alters our thinking, does it not? I like Brave. It's, a, it's an interesting movie. But we have to know the portions in it that alter our thinking, like when they say we choose our own fate in that movie and other things as well. So we have to know as we think about this, we're going to think about our competing worldviews as well. These competing worldview systems that are all around us that influence the way we think. And we're going to focus in on three because I believe these three, elements of these three, probably influence us more than others. We don't deal a whole lot with Buddhist Eastern thought, um, but that you may, and it could influence your worldview. But we're going to focus in on modernity, postmodernity, and Marxism over the next three weeks, next 12 weeks, those three worldview systems. And I'm going to unpack them more as we go, so I'm just going to give you a succinct um, definition of each here and now. Modernity, or sometimes called naturalism, is a worldview that believes that all that exists is the natural world, and that truth can only be found through scientific investigation. Modernity and naturalists, they reject supernatural stuff. So these are the people often we see that are explaining away the Bible through things. They only think in the terms of the natural or evolutionary processes. There's also a spirit of modernity that says what people need is more education. So if we get more education, if we get the people educated, then problems will go away. What the Bible says is there from sin, they believe is from a lack of understanding. Postmodernity, our second worldview system that we'll think about, is a response to the failings of modernity. So modernity starts coming out in the 1800s, early 19th century, and then what happens? Two world wars. And we see in those two world wars that postmodernity emerges afterwards because after decades of wars and dictators and genocide, people start to doubt modernity and naturalism. Postmodernity has been described as a worldview of doubt, a doubt in science, a, a doubt in leaders, a doubt in anyone that wants to lead, right? You think about, they are, they've seen Stalin and they've seen Mussolini and these guys, and so if you want to be in leadership, then we should worry about you. Postmodernity is a doubt of truth claims or meta-narratives. If you claim to know truth, they will doubt you. Postmodernity finds its truth in self. So if you've ever heard someone say, well, this is my truth, or you have your truth and I have my truth, that's postmodernity. 
Postmodernity tells us we need to look within ourselves for answers rather than seeking truth. And then finally, Marxism. Karl Marx was a thinker that lived in the 1800s, and he's creator of what we know as communism. But there's also some philosophy behind his thought that has seeped down. He created a comprehensive life system that sees the world through a lens of economics, through oppressors and oppressees, the haves and the have-nots. In Marxism, class struggle is the devil, and Marxism, or communism, is the savior. And I promise you, with all three of these worldview systems, you encounter them daily, and like rolling Play-Doh across the ground, if you ever play with Play-Doh, you will pick up things unknowingly. Do you ever look at someone and say, well, you know, people only do that, they only do the things they do because it benefits them? Do you ever think that? If you do, Karl Marx is smiling somewhere. Do you ever say that you have your own truth or truth is relative? I have. That's postmodernity. So, as we think about worldviews, we have to think about what's out there. And there'll be more to come on each one of these three systems as we progress. But for right now, you should know that what started in the halls of philosophy departments and universities filters down to the culture through things like this, or through things like this. And so what are the elements of a worldview? We talk about a worldview. We say that there are worldview systems. The Bible has a worldview. There are no neutral gowns, as C.S. Lewis said. There, there, there is no just neutral areas of our life. So what are the elements? Well, every single worldview must answer five questions. Every single worldview system must answer five questions. The first one, <clears throat> who is God? Or is there a God? Every worldview system has a theology. Even an atheist has a theology. Now, their, their, their theology will be that there is no God, but they still have to answer that question. So the first question is, is there a God? Who is God? The second one is, why is there something instead of nothing? Cosmology. So why is there a universe? Why, why is this, this, this pulpit here? Why are the clothes that I'm wearing here? We have to answer, why is there something instead of nothing? Third, how do we know things? Knowledge. Fourth, how should we live? Are there ethical boundaries? Are there some things that are too far outside of the boundaries we shouldn't do? And what is permissible is, as C.S. Lewis said, men may have argued through the years whether a man should have one wife or many wives, but no culture has ever believed that a man should have any woman he wants. So what are those boundaries? A worldview must answer that. Fifth, who or what is man? Where do we come from? What are our origins? Every worldview has to answer these questions. And every single one of us has to answer these questions. The problems we will consider is where do we find the answers to these questions? In the Bible or from our culture? So where should we start as Christians when we think about Christian worldview? Well, the Bible. You probably knew that answer. We start with the Bible. And in this study, we're going to start with the first book of the Bible. We're going to start with Genesis. Start with Genesis. <clears throat> now, a little background. If, if, if you're a visitor here, whenever we go through a book of the Bible, we always try and think about the context and, and why 
it was written and all of those sorts of things. So Genesis is the first book of the Bible, and it is the first book of the Pentateuch, or the five books of the Bible. It is the first Old Testament book. Moses is the author of the Pentateuch, is believed to be, I believe, Moses is the author of the Pentateuch. And we get the name Genesis from the Latin Vulgate translation, where Genesis means in Latin source, birth, or generation. In Hebrew, it just means in the beginning. That's the title of it, in the beginning, the first three letters, first three words. And Genesis lays the groundwork for the entire Bible because here we're introduced to a creator, how the creation came to be, the fall, why are things messed up? Why is sin in the world? Why are there bad things? Why is there evil? We're introduced to all that and redemption. In fact, the first three chapters of Genesis are a microcosm of the entire Bible story. We have creation, fall, and redemption. And so it's the appropriate place for us to start as we are building our biblical Christian worldview. Kenneth Matthews, it says that there is no Christian worldview without Genesis. And so we can't unhitch, we can't get rid of, we need Genesis, and it's where we're going to start. And in the very first verses of Genesis, we are introduced to God in the fullness of his being. Because the first thing we read as we jump into Genesis is before there was a universe, God is. Before anything around us existed, there was God. Now we're going to jump into chapter 1, and next week we're going to think about the passive party in the text, right? Next week we're going to think about the creation, but this week we're going to think about the active party, so we're going to think about the theology aspect of our worldview. We're going to think about God, the one who is, the one who is before all things. Theology is a two-part word. You know, some people are scared of that word. Don't be scared of it. Theos means God in Greek. Logos is the word. It's where we get our word logic from. So theology is our studying or understanding of God. In our theology, our worldview, it all starts with God. It all starts with God. And friends, this sermon this morning, we're about to jump in the text, this sermon this morning matters for you because right belief about God is foundational to your worldview. Right belief about God is foundational to your worldview. Look with me at Genesis 1. Genesis 1, starting in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. There was an evening, and there was a morning one day. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. So God made the expanse and separated the water from the expanse 
from the water above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse sky. Evening came, and then morning, the second day. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth produce vegetation, seed-bearing plants and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds, and it was so. The earth produced vegetation, seed-bearing plants according to their kinds, and trees bearing fruit with seed it according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning the third day. Then God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the sky to separate the day from the night. They will serve as signs for the seasons and for days and years. They will be lights in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, and it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to rule over the day and the lesser light to rule over the night, as well as the stars. God placed them in the expanse of the sky to provide light on the earth, to rule the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. Evening came, and then morning, the fourth day. Then God said, Let the water swarm with living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the sky. So God created the large sea creatures and every living creature that moves and swarms in the water according to their kinds. He also created every winged creature according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. God blessed them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. Evening came and then morning, the fifth day. Then God said, let the earth produce living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, creatures that crawl, and the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. So God made the wildlife of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, and God saw that it was good. Friends, our worldview starts with God. This passage informs our worldview regarding our theology, our understanding of God, in four ways. God is eternal. God has life in himself. God is our creator, and God is powerful. So the first thing we see here is that God is eternal. Look with me at verse 1. In the beginning, God. Before there was a universe, God is. Before there was anything, there is God. Psalm 90 states that God is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 102 reminds us that while we wear out and pass away like old clothes, old shoes, God remains the same and that His years never end. You and I, friends, we are restricted to a succession of moments. We are restricted to a succession of moments called time. Think of the old Greek proverb, you never step in the same river twice. (coughs) What does that mean? Have you ever walked through a river? Right? Like, as soon as you take the first step and the water goes around your feet, by the time you take your second step, it's a different river. 
Why? Water's going past. The bottom of the, the riverbed is changing. It's, it's moving. It's flowing. All we know of life is change. We are different from walking in this building. If nothing else, you're a few minutes older. Right? Depending on our age, we have grown or decayed since we walked through those double doors in the back. Since we got up this morning, we have changed. Some of us are taller, some of us are grayer, some of us are skinnier, some of us may be fatter. Maybe minutely, we can't see it with the naked eye, but we have changed. All of us are one breath further from birth and one breath closer to death. It's been like two seconds since I said that. And again, we are one breath further from our birth and one breath closer to our death. As humans, we are tied to a succession of moments that make up our lives. We are constantly changing. We are becoming, but not God. God does not change. God does not become. He cannot be measured in moments. He cannot be measured in years. He cannot be measured in days. He does not grow. He is not in the process of becoming. He does not grow in his understanding in any way, friends. God is perfect. He is eternal. He is unchanging. He has no beginning. He has no end. Time does not limit him. Time does not limit his purposes, his promises, his perfections, his will. Time does not change or limit God in any way. Now, we struggle to understand that because we're tied to a succession of moments. It's all we know. <clears throat> but we read right here in the very first verse, not God, because in the beginning, before there was a universe, God is. He is eternal. In the beginning, God. His boundless. And His boundlessness, His eternality, is, goes hand in hand with our second point. God has life in and of Himself. God is not dependent on creation. He is the creator. He is God. In no way does God's existence depend on any other beings. That is the fundamental difference between God and us, right? He is dependent on no one. We are dependent on Him in every single way. And the classic theological term for this is God is assay. God is ase. He is from himself in the Latin. The Westminster Confession describes God's aseity like this. God has life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory in by unto or upon them. Friends, God has everything he needs in himself. He does not need you. He doesn't need me. And that's a good thing. He doesn't need the universe. He doesn't need anything in it. Because God is before all things, before the universe, and he is self-sufficient. He is assay. And all honor and worship are due this creator. Because God has life in and of himself, he can create. Which brings us to our third thing we see in this passage of Genesis. God is the creator. As I said earlier, God is the active 
party in this passage. The creation is the passive part, and we're going to talk about that next week. Next week, we're going to talk about creation and years and all that stuff that people like to argue and fight about. So if you heard Genesis 1 and you thought, great, we're going to see where Pastor stands on that, that's next week. This week, we're just talking about the creator, the one behind all of that things. He's the active party. Just like our salvation in Ephesians 1, God is the driving force. He is making things happen. He is before all things, and he created all things. Just let your eyes fall on the text. I won't read it all again, I promise. But eight times we see in this passage, then God said. Eight times we see, let there be. And then what happens? It was so. As you read these 25 verses, God is doing. He's active. He's making it happen. He's the one doing it. And what's interesting and what's amazing and makes us praise him is that his work is effortless. He speaks, and things come into existence. You know, I forget who it was we were talking about. I don't know, maybe Keenan and I, I don't remember. But we were talking one day about like when you pray and your, and your, your prayers get kind of rote. And whoever it was I was speaking with, we do the same thing as I'll try and think of the vastness of the universe, right? Like I, I think about what it would be like to be out halibut fishing off Duke Island in a storm and knowing that huge amount of water and all the creatures that are under me. And then look up at the sky and just thinking about the you know, trillions of miles that our universe is across and that is the God I'm praying to. But just think about all that stuff, the mountains around us, and know that he spoke, and it came into existence. God's creative work is effortless. He speaks, and it comes, and it also is ex nihilo. It is from nothing. It's not as though there was some existing matter that was floating around in, in the universe and God said, well, I'm going to take this and I'm going to make an earth with it. Space, time, matter, all of these things, they came forth at the, the Word of God. Just ponder that for a minute. That's the God we sang about a few minutes ago. That's the one we lift up our, our, our voice and, and worship through song to. He just spoke. And all of these things came into existence. There was nothing. Then all of a sudden there was all of this. God spoke light into existence. And then he separated the light from the dark. He spoke water and land into existence. And he separated them. He spoke and vegetation sprung forth from the ground. Right? Like animals were created. He spoke a humpback. My kids love humpback whales. But it spoke a humpback into existence. All things came forward at his command. Hebrews 11.3 says that by faith we understand the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was made from things that are not visible. Right? Like we, we can't see God speak the world into existence. But we look around us and we see the heavens declare his glory. We look at this universe and we look at the stars of the sky, Orion's belt, we look at, at Dude Mountain and we see the glory of God because he spoke it into existence. What kind of being can do that? Who can command the vastness and complexity of the universe to come forth? 
That brings us to our fourth point. God is all-powerful. God speaks, and it's so. Look at verse 4. God commands the light and dark to separate. Look at verse 9. He commands the seas. Verse 17, God places the stars and the planets in the sky. Who can do that? Command the ocean. I think in biblical theology, that has a lot of implications, right? Like first, I just think about being in rough seas. I don't know that I've ever been in real, real rough seas compared to some of you guys, but I've been in seas that made me a little nervous going fishing. And, and, and I just imagine speaking and commanding the seas, not me, but imagine a being that can do that. Only God can do that, which tells us a lot about Jesus in the New Testament. Who can speak and the wind and waves obey his voice? Who has that power? The creator, God alone. You know, we speak a lot about big rulers, right? Like you think about like Julius Caesar. I told you I just read a book about Ulysses S. Grant, right? The powerful Civil War general um, and then a president. You think Henry VIII, Winston Churchill. These are powerful guys, right? But all of their power is dependent on others. Having good generals, a strong army, technology at their disposal. But God's power is from no one because he is ase. He has everything he needs in and of himself. He is self-sufficient, friends. And when God determines to do something, he will do all that his holy will determines to do. He is omnipotent. He is sovereign. He is in complete control of our universe. And sometimes I'll hear a well-meaning person that will say something like this. They'll say, God can do anything he wants to do except violate your will. And I'm reminded of an apostle that was on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians when he became one. Did he get a choice in the matter? An all-powerful sovereign God took him and said, this one's mine. And he is going to plant churches all throughout the Mediterranean. And I'm going to show him how much he will suffer for my name. You can read that in Acts. I remember a king in the Old Testament who pridefully gloated over his achievements. Walking on the roof in Babylon. And God turned him into a crazy guy. With long hair, eating grass. And when this king's, when King Nebuchadnezzar's sanity returns to him, he says this. He says, God's dominion is an everlasting dominion. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing to him. God does all that he wants. There is no one that can block his hand, and there is no one that will question God and say, why did you do what you did? Friends, he is all-powerful, and he is sovereign over his creation that he spoke into existence. That means you and me. There is not a maverick molecule, as R.C. Sproul, the late R.C. Sproul used to say, there's not a maverick molecule in this whole universe. Whether God is humbling a king, calling an apostle, or creating a universe, nothing will hold back his power. He is God, and we are not. He is the creator, and all things were created for him and by him for his glory. All things are His, even the air we breathe. The air we are breathing right now is not ours. It is God's. 
God is all-powerful, eternal, self-sufficient creator. So how does that help us in our understanding of the world around us? How does this, how, how, how does this help our worldview? How does it, foundationally, as we are building this worldview over the next 12 weeks, what does this mean? Well, first, I want to think about the opposing worldviews. And you say, why? Why do we need to think about this Karl Marx guy? Because Paul writes in Colossians 2.8, Be careful that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deceit based on human tradition, based on the elements of the world, rather than Christ. So we are commanded to be careful not to be taken hostage by worldview systems that are apart from the Bible. So we're going to think briefly here about these, and then we're going to move to the Christian worldview. So how do we think about these corrupt systems and avoid them when they pop up during our day? Well, in the modern worldview, you might find someone who believes in a God, but you're not going to f- often find someone who believes in this God, the God we're just reading about, this all-powerful God. If they believe in a God, it's going to be a God with limited power. The modern worldview is suspicious of any supernaturalism and attempts to explain it away. I heard a man one time say that Jesus didn't really walk on the water, but he was walking on a sandbar that was just lightly submerged. And so when the apostles saw him, or the disciples saw him, they thought, well, he looks like he's walking on the water, and then it became a myth down through the ages. But we read in the Old Testament that God treads upon the water, and then we find Christ treading upon the water in the New They'll say something like, Jesus didn't command the sea. He was just a good teacher. And yeah, read the Bible and and take some good things away from it, like loving one another. But don't worry so much about the supernatural stuff. Because in the modern worldview and naturalism, the natural world is the focus. The creation, not the creator. In modernity, if one believes in a God, it is not the God. Postmodernity, you may believe in a God if you wish. Just make sure that you don't believe your God is any better than anybody else's God. In postmodernity, uh, God is certainly not sovereign. In the postmodern worldview, God can't even really be known. <clears throat> You'll run into this sometimes and you tell somebody, well, you know, God is immutable, he doesn't change. And they'll say, well, how do you know that? Well, he says it in Malachi. But then they'll question that. You're an arrogant person if you say that this is what God is like. Because in a postmodern worldview, the, one of the most offensive things you can ever do is claim to know truth. In that worldview, there's no plan. God has no design. Everything is random. You are the captain of your ship. You make your fate. You make your destiny. In Marxism, well, it's the easiest one of the three to go over today because Marxism is... Militant atheism. Marxism is militant atheism. Karl Marx called religion the opium of the masses. It is the drug of the the mass of people. Marxism begins with the presupposition that there is no God. But that is one of the reasons, friends, why we cannot use something like CRT in our churches, something that has its foundations in a godless ideology like Marxism. 
I don't know if you've ever looked up CRT, but if you are a heterosexual and a Christian, you are already on your way to being an oppressor. So what about the Christian worldview? Because that's what we want to know about. That's what we want to learn, right? Like, it's good to know those other things and to be able to keep an eye out for them, but what about the Christian worldview? Well, in our theology and what the Bible teaches, we affirm the God of the Bible. The God is He has revealed Himself to us, right? Like, in His Word, He is revealing, this is what I am like. He is saying, this is who I am. This is what I'm like. This is what I do. And we believe Him. So we believe in the God of the Bible, the one true and the living God who is one God in three persons. And those three persons are the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. If you ever struggle to remember that, it's like I tell my kids, just sing the last line of the doxology, <coughs> and you'll get it. One God in three persons, all-powerful, all-knowing. He is sovereign, electing, a redeeming God. He plans history. He is guiding history. All things are coming to pass according to His holy and perfect will because He is all-powerful. God has revealed Himself to us and told us what He's like, and we believe Him. So what does it mean for us as we're thinking about worldview in everyday life if we accept the competing worldviews? Well, what does it mean for us not to believe in an all-powerful God? What does it mean for us to believe in a God with a limited power, with limited creative abilities, with limited sovereign? What does that do for our faith? Do we still pray to that God? One that really can't do anything? That has no power? What does it mean to, for God to be one choice among many? And what does it mean for us to bring ideologies that begin with a godless foundation into the church and then try and baptize them to be popular with culture? It means that we have a belief, and I'm not just talking about what we might say to somebody, but in our hearts, and our minds, a belief in a God that is not the God of the Bible. It means that we are looking to an imagined fake, emaciated God in bleak situations. Not the God that can speak and mountains are moved. The weak God who's acceptable in our universities but does not really exist. So what does it mean if we accept for our everyday life, what does it mean for us to accept the one true and living God? Right? Because that's the argument often against theology is it's not practical, which I think is wrong. First, by accepting the God of the Bible and what the Bible teaches us about God, we are strengthened in our faith. I pray to a God who is before all things, who is eternally existent, that before the universe existent, He was there and is unchanged since that time. He needs nothing. He is in and of Himself self-sufficient. When he speaks, things come into being. And the God I pray to, if all creation is dependent on him, right? Everything is dependent on him. He speaks and things come to be. And he loves me before the foundation of the world. We read in the Bible that if, if you're here and you're in faith and if you believe in Christ that before the foundation of the world, before any of these things were done that we read this morning, God set his love on you. 
And then he sends his only son as a sacrifice for the the sins that I have committed, the rebellion against him. Nailed on a cross and then rose on the third day at his right hand. If that is the God that I serve and it is, what shall I fear? Sword? Famine? Plague? Pestilence? Nakedness? Trials? What does Paul tell us in Romans 8? No. If that's the God we serve, and it is, what shall we fear? However, we don't just study theology. We don't just study the Bible to learn about God to see what we can get, do we? We also do it because we love the one who first loved us. So first, our faith is strengthened in our worldview because of who God is. But second, accepting what the Bible teaches about, the God, about God will drive us to daily worship. Sometimes we'll make the comment that they don't care about theology, they just love Jesus. And when they say that to you, know that they didn't arrive to that conclusion from a sincere study of God's Word. Someone told them that. Because you don't read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and get the idea that we are a mindless religion and that we are not to love the Lord God with our heart, soul, and mind, that we are not to be renewed by our minds, that, 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 that Paul doesn't say, hey, you know what? Just love Jesus. He says, this is how you should live. This is what you should think. This is what you should know. And we love the one that we study Do some people study theology so they can know more than other people? Yeah, sure. But the one with a a true, genuine heart, we study to know Him. And friends, it is telling that the church went in the last couple hundred years from the chief end of men is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. The first question of the Shorter Catechism of the Westminster Confession. A church that said, my chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him ever to I don't need theology. And we wonder why genuine love of God is in decline and why holiness is declined and dare I say it, friends, hope is in decline. Because I agree with Packer, our holiness and our hope are tied together. We desire to love and enjoy God as He has revealed Himself. And our worldview, our daily picture of God starts with the Scriptures. And when we have a biblical picture of God, we can overcome and we worship Him with trust and thanksgiving. And a biblical picture of God puts all of our other worldview elements into their right place. So as we begin this series, the first of 12, I want to ask you this. Ponder what kind of glasses you have on. Ponder what kind of glasses you have on. Are you wearing glasses that frame the world that you see every day, biblically? When you walk through A&P or Safeway or Walmart or if you go to, to, to AJ's to get a burger, are you seeing the world through a biblical lens or have you put the spirit of the age over your eyes? And is it a mixture Because if we have seen with theology, our ideas have consequences. And we are called to love the Lord God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and all of our mind. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you that you help us to understand your word. 
God, give us hearts now that desire to, to, to struggle and wrestle with these issues and to think through them biblically. I pray that as a church, we would honor you with all of our lives. You have redeemed all of us. You love all of us. May we be a people that love you with everything we have. In Jesus' name, amen.